Well, I want to welcome everybody here today and those joining us on TV and on the stream. We're glad that you're a part. Also, want to say a big welcome to all of our multi-site campuses all over New Mexico and our campus in Belize. We're glad that you're a part of the Sagebrush family as well. Let me start off by asking you a question. How many of you love it when somebody goes all in? I mean all in. I mean they do things that you go, wow, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. Because you know that they worked on it, they were hard about it, they persevered. How many appreciate people who go all in? I mean you look at these things, you see these things, and you go, wow, I've never seen anything like that before in my entire life. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Take a look at this. you as the video was going on, ooh, ah, right? I mean, it's amazing. We, we go crazy when we see somebody fully committed to something, like the Olympic athlete. We know they trained for years and years and years to try to bring home that medal for their country. We look up to our servicemen and women who sacrifice everything to protect the freedoms of our country. We love it when people go all in, don't we? We love that. We love that more than anything else. But not every time do we love it. Because some people go all in for things that don't make any sense at all, right? Do you remember? Remember the tanning lady? Let me show you a picture of the tanning lady. She got herself, <laughs> she got herself in a bit of trouble. She tanned a little too much, wouldn't you say? She went all in, but I'm not sure she was all there. Do you understand what I'm saying right now? We like it when people are who they say that they are and when they go in for a noble cause. But when we find out that someone isn't doing what we think they're doing, when they're a fake or a fraud, it really upsets us. Years ago, my wife and I, we were watching the Olympics. They were in London on this particular year. And they showed this scene of where the, a plane was going over the stadium. And all of a sudden, the Queen of England jumped out of the plane. Do you remember that? And I'm sitting there, and, and I'm watching this, and I know, I mean, as you can see from the picture, that's obviously not the Queen of England. But my wife bought into the illusion, and she turned to me, and she said, I cannot believe that they are allowing the Queen of England to do that. And I said, yeah, the Pope's jumping next. That's what's going to happen right there. Here's your sign, you know. I didn't say that because I wanted to live another day, okay? You understand what I'm saying? My point is, is that we love it when people back up what they say with actual action. So it shouldn't surprise us that God is the exact same way. God loves it when people make big commitments to him, when they're all in for the one who's been all in for us. And so I just want to say this right off the bat. If you're holding on to something that you're refusing to let go, 
If you've got some sin that you've chosen is more important than your Savior, if you're messing around with something that you shouldn't mess around with, it's time for you to go all in. It's time for you to make a commitment to Jesus Christ and not look back. Now, I know what I'm talking about today is very, very hard and very, very difficult because we kind of fear away from making strong commitments. At, at least I remember that I used to do that, especially when it comes to our relationship with God because we're fearful of what he's going to do with our life. When I, when I was a young man, I was about 15, 16 years old, I'd, I'd gone through a very difficult time in my life and I was wrestling with the questions about God. Is, is God really there? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is the Bible really true? How do we know that the, that the faith in Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? So I'm studying all this stuff. I'm trying to figure out my doubts and my questions. I'm meeting with my pastor once a week. And he says to me on one occasion, he says, Todd, I believe that God is calling you into full-time Christian ministry. It's like God has his hand upon you for such a time as this. And I just thought that was one of the most ridiculous things that I'd ever heard. But for the first time in my life, someone saw something in me that I never saw in myself. So I started just beginning to pray about it. And I said, God, if this is what you want me to do, if this is what you want me to give my life to, then take away every desire for anything else. Well, I remember I'm sitting in church. And, it, and the church that I grew up in, they had an altar call every week. And some of you know what these are about. You stand up at the very end, everybody sings the song. And then people who want to make a decision for Jesus, they kind of go down the rows to the front where their pastors are at. And they tell them what decision that they want to make. Well, I just felt like that God was calling me to finally make a commitment, a public commitment to go into the ministry. And so I'm about three, four rows from the very back. I'm up there in the cheap seats like a bunch of you guys right there. And, and, and I start to come down, you know, slowly but surely. And I'm just trying to pump myself up along the way because I'm so scared. And I kept saying to myself over and over again, full-time Christian ministry, full-time Christian ministry. Today's the day I go all in for the one who went all in for me. And the pastor was so excited to see me coming down because he knew the commitment that I was about to make. And he put his hand out to me and said, Todd, do you believe that God has called you to full-time Christian ministry? And I said, no, he's called me to rededicate my life to the Lord. Because I was afraid. I, I just didn't see myself as someone who could be used by God in this way. A week goes by. And my mom and dad, uh, they travel to St. Louis. And I go, I'll go along with them. We go visit my Aunt Ruby. It's Sunday morning. Uh, Aunt Ruby didn't go to church. She watched church on TV. And so we're watching this guy on TV talking. And, and she begins to ask me questions. And I begin to answer her questions. And for the first time, I was like, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is something that God would have me to do. And it was the next weekend. I think my church got so sick of me walking down the aisle. The next week, I came down the aisle. And I put my hand in the pastor's hand. And I said, I'm ready. I'm ready to go all in for the one who went all in for me. And it just changed the whole trajectory of my life. Where we're doing this study on the life of Jesus. And he's a troublemaker. Everywhere he goes, he causes trouble. And last week, he announced that he is the Messiah. And boy, they took him to a cliff. They were going to throw him down. They were going to kill him. But it wasn't Jesus' time to die. So he walked right through the crowd. Well, guess what the next thing Jesus does? He begins to gather his disciples. And the Bible really hones in on Jesus' 12 disciples. Now, what do we know about Jesus? Well, we know that he was a rabbi. And that word rabbi means that he was a teacher. And it was a big deal in the first century to be a rabbi. Here's how the process would go. 
Uh, every male Jewish boy would go to school at the age of six. And they would study the Old Testament, especially those first few years, they would study the Torah. And by the age of 10, children had to have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. So they had to have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy completely memorized. Now, by the age of 10, if you didn't have those five books memorized, guess what? You just flunked out of rabbi school. Already at the age of 10, you find out that you're a loser. That's what happens. And you end up going back to your family business. Well, those who were the elite, those who were able to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament, continued on in their rabbi school because this was the highest position that someone could go after. So by the age of 14, they had to have the entire Old Testament memorized. And those who had the entire Old Testament memorized, they would begin to put their resume together. They would begin to put their application together, and there would be rabbis around. See, Jesus wasn't the only rabbi. John the Baptist was a rabbi who had disciples. The Pharisees were considered rabbis who also had disciples. So what would happen is these kids who graduated from rabbi school, they would go and they would petition a particular rabbi that they wanted to follow. Well, they weren't always picked up. And so those who weren't picked up to follow a rabbi, they would go back to the family business. But for those who were picked up by a rabbi, it was a tremendous honor. And they would follow that rabbi 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Even when the rabbi went to the bathroom, they would go into the bathroom with the rabbi just in case he said something that was good and they didn't want to miss it. So they would put their applications, their resumes together. They would be interviewed. And if the student was smart enough or good-looking enough, then maybe, just maybe, a rabbi would choose them. Jesus comes on the scene. He begins to pick his 12 disciples. But he doesn't ask for any resumes. He doesn't ask for any kind of application or interviewing process. Isn't that interesting? In fact, Jesus doesn't pick one person to be one of his 12 disciples who had just graduated from rabbi school. He chose the dropout. He chose the flunky. He chose the one who missed the mark. The one who wasn't most likely to succeed. The one who wasn't the best dressed. Or the one who didn't necessarily have the best personality. Now, Jesus picked a couple of fishermen. He picked a tax collector. He picked a political activist. He picked two brothers. Their names were James and John. Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. And that wasn't because they were born during a storm. Do you understand what I'm saying? These guys had bad tempers. They were known for being the partiers of the day. Now, doesn't that encourage you? I don't know about it. It encourages me. Jesus didn't pick the most likely to succeed. That gives me hope because I wasn't picked to be the most likely to succeed. He didn't pick the one with the best personality because if you've been around me for more than an hour, you'll walk away and go, he does not have the best personality that I've ever met. It gives me hope that maybe somehow God could use somebody like me. I want to tell you something. There's never been a point in my life, never one moment, not even a millisecond, where I felt like I was worthy to be used by God. Not one time in my life when I looked in the mirror and go, whoo, I bet God is glad I'm on his team. I tell you what, <laughs> that never happened. 
If anything, I'm always shocked and amazed that he uses me the way that he does. I mean, every day, it just, it just astounds me that he would use such a, such a beautiful letdown as me. And you feel the same way. I know you feel the same way. Let me tell you something, friends. Your availability to God is more important than your ability. And don't you ever forget that. If you want the key to really being used by God, just be available to him. I mean, I got that right. Because I've prayed this prayer hundreds of thousands of times. God, wherever, whenever, whatever you want me to say, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to give up, whatever you want, it's all that I want. I want what you want for my life. Let me be in the center of your will for my life. God, I am available to you. And if you'll pray a prayer like that over and over and over again, God will start to use you in ways that you never dreamed possible. Well, Jesus begins to collect his 12 disciples. The first two that he collects are Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Let's look at this passage of scripture. This is found in Luke chapter 5. It says, one day, as Jesus was staying by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crying around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put a little out from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, the Bible tells us that Simon Peter and his brother Andrew were fishermen, and they have fished all night long, and they haven't caught anything. Now, that's the first miracle in the story, is you have professional fishermen admitting that they hadn't caught anything all night, okay? If you've been around professional fishermen, you know what a miracle that actually is. During this time, Jesus' popularity is absolutely sky high. There are thousands and thousands of people that come out to hear what he has to say. And the Bible says he's kind of being crushed by the people. So he goes into Simon Peter's boat. So would you cast a little bit out from shore so I can talk to the people because they're kind of crushing me on the shore's edge. And so Simon Peter goes out a little bit and he's fixing his nets. Because all night long he's been throwing his nets and pulling them back in, throwing them in, pulling them back in. Hadn't caught anything. His nets have got some knots. He's taking the knots out of his nets. So he's sitting there and he's listening to Jesus teach about the kingdom of God. And then Jesus gets done, dismisses the crowd. They begin to walk away. And Jesus turns to Simon Peter and he says, hey man, how about you take your nets and why don't you cast them out into the deep water? Now let me tell you about Simon Peter and Andrew. They had no desire to cast their nets in the deep water. They had already been fishing all night long. They'd already made their plans. Let me ask you a question. You ever make your plans and then Jesus comes in and changes your plans? There, there's a song that's out by Thomas Rhett. says you make your plans and, and God starts laughing. You ever heard that little line? You say, Todd, how do you know that? You hate country music. And that's very, very true. How do I know the Thomas Rhett tune? It's because my wife loves country music. And my oldest daughter, Mackenzie, and her husband, Trey, love country music. My middle daughter, Hannah, loves country music. My daughter, Cammie, she listens to it from time to time. But she's more an 80s alternative rock kind of gal, to be honest with you. So what I'm basically saying is, is that all my family are sellouts, and I'm the only one following Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what I'm trying to say to you. So you make your plans, and then God starts to laugh. So what does Jesus say? He says, hey, why don't you take your, your nets and cast them out over into the deep water. Look at what the Bible says. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put down the deep water, let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. 
Now, there's lots of ways we can interpret how he said that. He could say, because you said so, or because you say so very humbly, or he could say very sarcastic, okay, well, because you say so. And I think it was more like that, don't you? Because he's a professional fisherman, and he knows that you don't take your nets and cast them in the deep water. The nets don't go down deep enough to catch the fish. It's going to be surfacey. No fish are going to be on the surface. Not because you say so, Mr. Carpenter, I'll go and do it. So he goes out and he throws his nets, and you know the rest of the story. There's so many fish. He catches the most tremendous amount of fish. He even calls his partners over, James and John, and they bring their boat over, and both boats begin to go down because of the enormous catch of fish. Now, this is the day that he has been waiting his entire life for. I mean, he has hit the jackpot in this moment. This is what he's been praying for for so long. You almost expect a camera crew to come running out and say, Peter, you just caught the greatest catch of fish in mankind's history. What are you going to do now? And you expect him to say, I'm going to Disneyland. That's what I'm going to do, right? But he doesn't do that. He's pulling those nets. The nets are tearing. He's never seen anything like this in his life. And he looks back to the shore, and he sees Jesus with this big grin on his face. And Peter says, I had nothing to do with this. This was all him. And in that moment in time, he determined that Jesus was the Son of God. That there was something different about Jesus, because when they pulled the boats back to the shore with this tremendous catch, look at what he says to Jesus. It says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm just a sinful man. I, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. You are holy. You are God's son. I'm not even worthy to be near you. Go away from me, Jesus. Look at what Jesus said to him. He said, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and they followed him. So let me see if I got this story straight. Simon Peter, the one who flunked out of rabbi school, the one who's carrying on the family business, Jesus looks at him and sees something in him that he doesn't see in himself. He says, you think that was fun, fishing for perch? We're going to change the world together. And we're going to do it through love. One person at a time, and Peter is given the opportunity of a lifetime. And I want you to see what Peter does. Luke 5, verse 11 says, they pulled their boats up on shore, they left everything, and they followed him. They left the greatest catch of fish, they left their boats behind, they left their nets behind, they left everything behind. Why? Because when you have an encounter with Jesus, the things that were once important to you aren't so important anymore. All of a sudden, everything begins to change. You no longer live for yourself and making your name great and for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. You live for the kingdom of God and you live your life for the things of God. And here's what's interesting. When they accepted the challenge to come and be a disciple of Jesus, there was no applause on this earth. But let there be no doubt there was applause in heaven. For I believe that there were millions of angels holding their breath, waiting for Peter and Andrew to say, yes, we will follow you. And I believe that God the Father had the biggest smile that you'd ever seen on his face because there was two of his kids who believed that he could do something supernatural with their life. 
Now, what do we know? We know that there were more than 12 disciples. You knew that, right? If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that there was a time when Jesus sent 70 disciples out. And we know from John chapter 6 that Jesus had a hard day of teaching a very difficult lesson. And there were lots of Jesus' disciples that said, who can accept this teaching? And they left. Jesus had 12 disciples that the Bible focuses in on. This is the executive team that Jesus had. Let me give you their names so you know who they are. There's Simon, Peter, and Andrew. They were brothers. In fact, there's two sets of brothers. you got Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and then you got James and John. Then you have Philip, who also brought his friend Nathaniel to follow Jesus. Then you have Matthew, who was a tax collector. Oh, my goodness, that sent shockwaves throughout the crowd. Matthew was one of the most despised people on the face of the earth. Tax collectors had sold their souls for the almighty dollar. People beat them up down the streets spit on them. Everybody hated the tax collector. They were the worst of all sinners. And Jesus said, Matthew, you come follow me too. Now they have Matthew. He also chose Thomas. He chose James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who went on to betray Jesus. Now, even though these guys are going to follow Jesus for three, three and a half years, and they're going to be with Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week, these guys still miss it all the time, don't they? I mean, you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you just kind of shake your head and go, when are these guys going to figure it out? Because they're constantly putting their foot in their mouth, and they're constantly fighting. There's one fight that comes up among the 12 disciples over and over and over again. And it's a fight that has to do with pride, doesn't it? And here's what the fight's about, which one of them's the greatest. They want to know the pecking order, don't they? They even come to Jesus. In fact, James and John get their mom to come to Jesus and say, Hey, when you enter into your kingdom, can my boys sit to the right and the left? And the other disciples were ticked off because they hadn't thought about bringing their mom to do the exact same thing. You understand? They're always fighting about who's the greatest. Jesus would bring a child, says, unless you're like a child, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Child says, hey, if you want to be first, you need to be last. And he's teaching them day after day after day. And he's showing them that to be great, you need to be a servant. You've got to put the needs of other people ahead of yourself. You've got to see needs. You've got to meet needs. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be the least of all. And they just don't get it. And there are moments when Jesus gets frustrated with the disciples and he thinks to himself, are these guys ever going to get it? And this is important to Jesus. Why? Because he knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to rise again. He knows 40 days later he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He knows that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be given to these men to spread throughout the entire world. And if they're busy about making their name great, If they're haughty and prideful and arrogant, the message isn't going to spread so well, is it? And so this is a concern for Jesus, isn't it? There's just hours before Jesus is getting ready to be crucified. And what does he find himself? He finds himself in the upper room enjoying the Lord's Supper with his disciples. It's the last meal he's going to have. It's the Passover feast. And everybody comes in. And there's no servant at the door to wash anybody's feet. And none of the disciples will lower themselves down to wash each other's feet. So they sit down and recline at a table with dirty feet. And you know the story? Jesus is the one who gets up. And Jesus is the one who washes all their feet. And then he says this to them. Do you understand what I've done for you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. That's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you talk about them. It doesn't say that. You'll be blessed if you get into a small group and discuss it. It doesn't say that. You'll be blessed if you do it. But they don't get it. Just a few hours, Jesus is arrested. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Peter denies knowing Jesus three times, and then the rooster crows. And the rest of the disciples, they all run, leaving Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to face his execution all alone. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is what changed? What was different for these guys? How is it that at one moment they are struggling, at one moment they're scared, and the next moment they're in the streets proclaiming that Jesus has in fact risen from the dead? I mean, one moment they're hiding in an upper room for fear someone's going to break down the door, and the next minute they don't care what anybody else says to them or anybody else does to them. What changed for the disciples that made them from cowards to courageous? That made them from being prideful and arrogant to being humble and wanting to be used by God? There was only one explanation. They had an encounter with the resurrected Messiah. See, three days later, Jesus rose again. And that night, Jesus appeared to the disciples, all the disciples except for Thomas. Thomas wasn't there, was he? And when they saw Jesus, they were absolutely amazed. And they knew. And then a week later, Jesus appears to them a second time. And he talks to Thomas and says, hey, put your hands in my wounds. Stop doubting and believe. And so these disciples, they have this unbelievable now courage that they didn't have before. Why? Because they've met the resurrected Messiah. And they've walked with him. They've talked with him. They've had meals with him. And their whole life is changed. They're no longer fearful anymore because they just met the one who conquered death. And when you meet the one who conquered death, you're not afraid of dying anymore. And you're willing to risk anything for the things of God and for the kingdom of God. So here's the question. Where did the disciples go? They went to the ends of the earth. Where did they spread? They spread the message of Jesus. And how did they die? Let me show you. Take a look. 33 AD, the resurrected Jesus with all authority in heaven commands the 11 disciples to the ends of the earth. The disciples and the early church leaders take on the great commission to the end of their lives. 34 AD, Stephen becomes the first martyr stoned to death in Jerusalem. 44 AD, James is beheaded in Judea. Later in Ethiopia, Matthew is killed by sword. 61 AD, Barnabas is stoned in Salonica. 63 AD in Jerusalem, James, son of Alphaeus, was thrown from the temple, stoned, and then clubbed. 64 AD, Simon Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. 65 AD in Beirut, Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus were hacked to death. Nathaniel is skinned alive and beheaded in Armenia. 67 AD, 
Paul is beheaded in Rome. 68 AD in Alexandria, Mark is dragged through the streets. 69 AD in Patras, Andrew is crucified on an X cross. 78 AD, Thomas is speared in Mylapore. 80 AD, in Jerusalem, Matthias was stoned and beheaded, and Philip is crucified upside down in Acropolis. 84 AD in Boeotia, Luke is crucified on an olive tree. 100 AD, finally, John, the last disciple, after surviving boiling oil and being exiled to Patmos, dies of old age in Ephesus. For 70 years, the men who walked with Jesus willingly faced gruesome executions and torture. Not one backed down or walked away from their faith. With the exception of Judas, who went and hung himself after he betrayed knowing Christ, and the exception of John, the last disciple, they put him in boiling oil and they couldn't kill him. In fact, he came out of the boiling oil and he didn't have anything wrong with him. They exiled him to the island of Patmos, and that's where we get the book of Revelation from. He's the only one who dies of old age. Every single one of the disciples were faithful to the end. Every single one of them proclaiming to the end that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, friends, they're in a unique position to know. To know that they know that they know that Jesus rose again from the dead because they walked with him, they talked with him, they did life together with him. And we're here today because Jesus took some ordinary guys and did something extraordinary in them. We talk all the time about wanting to be used by God in extraordinary ways. Well, you know how it happens? One ordinary moment at a time where you lay your life before him and say, God, make my ordinary life extraordinary. One life at a time. One conversation at a time. See, I think this is what's the most encouraging thing about this talk today. Is the same thing that Jesus did with the original 12 disciples he wants to do with you. He sees something in you that you don't see in yourself. And he believes in you. And he's calling out to you. He's saying, hey, you're having a lot of fun, aren't you? Listen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they probably had a five-year business plan, right? They were just going to catch fish for the rest of their life. They probably had this desire that one day they'd be the number one supplier of fish to all the Long John Silvers in Rome. Don't you think? But then Jesus came in their life. And what was once important wasn't so important anymore. And could it be that God wants to take your ordinary life and your ordinary existence and your ordinary home and your ordinary marriage and your ordinary job and he wants to infuse it with his Holy Spirit and make it extraordinary for you? But you've got to be all in. You've got to be all in for the one who went all in for you. Greatest decision I ever made in my entire life was asking Jesus into it. And I think that some of us today, you've been on the fence for a long, long time. And you believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, but you're really not committed. You know, you keep showing up and you think, when I get this question answered, or I get this answered, then I'll go all in for the one who went all in for me. What more do you need to know? I've been following Jesus for a long time now. I don't know every answer to every question. 
But I know that Jesus is God's son, and I know he died on a cross for my sins, and I know that he rose again from the dead. And so the best I know how, I have committed my life over to him. And all those questions that I'm not certain about how this works and how that works, I don't worry about those things too much because the Bible says one day when I enter into heaven that he'll even make all those unknown mysteries known to me in that moment in time. My job's to be faithful in this day. So let me ask you something. Are you ready to go all in for the one who went all in for you? We're going to go old school today. Just as I was a kid and we had altar calls where everyone would stand and we would sing and we'd give people opportunity to come down to the front and meet with the pastor, we're going to do the same thing today. There's something solidifying about that. I remember a few months ago, my mom was driving by the church where I had made that decision to follow Jesus. And I asked her if she would go into the church and take a picture of it. The room would seat maybe 200 people. The pews went back 10 deep. But in that moment, Jesus has never been more alive to me at that time. And I just think maybe you might be having that moment now. And to solidify it, there's something about coming down an aisle and stepping down and saying, I want to go all in for Jesus. I want to follow him like the disciples followed him. And I want him to use me in an extraordinary way. Well, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to stand. We're going to sing. And we're going to give you an opportunity to make that decision today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father. I still remember it. I remember my heart beating fast. I remember the sweat pouring from my forehead. I remember you calling me to something greater, to something better. And Lord, I believe that there might be someone here today who's feeling that too. And they've been putting off this decision and putting off this decision for weeks, maybe even months. But today is the day of their salvation. Today is the day when the angels in heaven rejoice and throw a party over them finally repenting of their sin and professing their faith in you. And saying, whatever you want, wherever you want, that's all that I care about. That's all that I want. So Lord, give us a moment of courage in this moment to make the decision that we know we need to make to finally go all in because you went all in for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.